Take your Bibles this morning, church. Head over to Genesis 4 with me. We are still in our series starting way back in January. I will take a break starting in a few weeks and we'll do some New Testament together for a while. But I'm really loving this because as I said, Genesis fact or fiction, my argument is this stuff makes a difference. If you believe Genesis, then a whole lot of other things are gonna fall in line for you. If you don't believe Genesis, you're gonna be pretty confused in this life. You're gonna be confused about the nature of the world and people. And we're learning a verse in every chapter And so we're learning verse seven. And verse seven is what sets up our story for today. We're gonna start with verse eight. And so let's say it, no blanks. Then I'll throw some blanks in there. It's a good way to try to memorize scripture. So you guys join me, okay? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. So what God is saying there, he's talking to Cain, look, He said, sin is sort of like a crouching animal. It's ready to pounce on you. But Cain, you can say no. You can stand, stand firm, stand fast. And sin and Satan will not overtake you. Uh, Yet, Cain doesn't seem to listen, does he? And so let's throw some blanks in there. You ready? Let's try it again. If you do well, will you not be accepted? Good. If you do not do well... Sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Good, that word desire means, in the Hebrew, it's pointed at you. Every one of us have some sin that's pointed at us. Every one of us have sin issues, the thorn in the flesh, the sin which so easily besets us, those things that just get us. And so, remember, we've all got it. But through the Lord Jesus Christ, I hope you see today as we have this comparison of the blood of Abel and the blood of Christ, I hope you'll see that we are more than conquerors. We are overcomers in the Lord. I talked to you the last two weeks about the favor of God. And I said that God really does care about the faith in your heart more than the gift in your hand. And he comes to us in our failure and offers us the strength to overcome sin What we find in the second half of the Cain-Abel narrative today is the disastrous deed of Abel's murder. Following that, we have the Lord's interrogation of Cain, his evasive response, and then the judgment or curse placed on him, but almost immediately mitigated by the mercy of the Lord. The story closes with the expulsion of Cain from God's presence, okay? And I want to just say, as they're seating, folks, thank you for being Uh, so faithful to be here. Uh, In a few weeks, as we come out of the vacation season, we're going to have to work on what we're going to do. I'll tell you about where we are with the worship center at the end of the service, but we're going to have to work on some things. If some of y'all want to try getting up for the eight o'clock, that would be fabulous. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Okay. All right. I know. I know. I'll push that off on the 930 crowd. Don't worry about it. We'll figure it out. Okay. We'll figure it out. But I'm, I'm grateful. God is bringing more people, more salvations, Uh, more new folks joining the family of God, joining the family of grace. I'm excited. Speaking of family, um, my mother's here today, so y'all be good. My mama's here, so I'm going to try to be good. Um, Heather has a a baby shower this afternoon at our house, so I'm going to hide in the basement and uh, take my nap. But um, Heather is due September something, September 10th, right? Yeah, she's got a little pooch going on, little baby basketball coming out, so that's cool. Sophie Scott, or Sophia, so we're very excited about that, and mom, it's good, good to have you, and if I mess up, you can tell me afterward. So 
I like true crime. I know you used to read a lot of true crime, Mom. I remember you read a lot of those novels, those books with true crime. I like that stuff. I like watching the forensic science stuff on TV. It's interesting to me as we think about this theme. Look at the screen. It's called The Blood Cries Out. The blood cries out. You know, when you watch those investigative dramas and those reenactments, you'll see how the investigators, the forensic scientists, look at the blood splatter or they'll pull DNA evidence or other things. Uh, Most of us haven't ever experienced that, so I'll bring it down sort of to the country boy level where I live. And that's, uh, I grew up hunting. And I did not grow up with a bow in my hand. I grew up with a gun hunting, um, rabbits and squirrels, and then later deer and bigger animals. But I, I took over bow, I took into bow hunting um, a little over 17 years ago. And the reason I know is Cindy went and worked with a local archery shop and bought me my first bow package for our 10th anniversary. Since we've been married over 27 years now, I kind of know the time frame. I don't know if she regrets buying that or not, but I've gotten a lot of enjoyment the last nearly two decades bow hunting and all manner of bow hunting. The difference is you rarely see an animal fall when you bow hunt. If you put a good shot, then there's going to be a blood trail and you learn to follow that at the appropriate time and you'll find an animal hopefully ethically and quickly expired so that you can begin to process it to eat or freeze or whatever you're going to do. You learn how to look at that blood in a certain way. And you hunters know what I'm talking about. You understand splatter patterns and height and amounts and if an animal is laid down for a while. There are things about that without being graphic that talk to you. There are things, and what's interesting is when you're trying to track at night and there are other creepy crawlies and things around you and you're down sometimes crawling for hours on your hands and knees. Um, The better the hit, though, the less you have to do that. That being said, there's something about that blood that bears witness. It gives evidence to what has happened. Do you know that the Bible mentions blood over 400 times in more than 350 verses? And from the opening pages of Genesis to the closing chapters of Revelation, we find that blood cries out. Blood tells us about the nature of sin and the nature of sacrifice and the nature of salvation. The blood cries from the pages of Scripture. Some say it's a scarlet thread or a crimson thread that ties Genesis to Revelation and everything in between. So I want us to see how the blood of Abel cries out, and then that takes us to the blood of Christ. Stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word. I'll be in Genesis 4, picking up verse 8. Remember... God's just told Cain, you can overcome sin. You don't have to succumb to this. But notice what happens. The Bible says, now Cain talked with Abel, his brother. Some of your translations may say, let us go out into the field. Some early um, Hebrew manuscripts actually had that phrase. So either way, he's trying to get Abel into his territory. Remember, he is a tiller of the field or of the ground. And so he talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother. Notice how many times you hear the word brother. And he killed him, the first recorded murder. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? Isn't that interesting? Like there was another Abel around. He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now, therefore, because of this, you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive, a vagabond, a wanderer, you shall be on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. 
Surely you've driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And then he kind of adds to the curse. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. Where are they coming from? Okay, we'll talk about it. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this truth, this word that speaks to us. I pray that we would hear, as the blood cries out, we would hear very clearly what the message is today. You would open our eyes and open our hearts to receive what you have for us. And let us remember that there's a hint of Cain in us all. And if we're not careful, we too, like him, will defer and deflect and even attempt to lie to our maker. So let us walk in the truth today. Draw men and women, boys and girls, to yourself. And for those in the room and even more that will be watching, even more listening, God, we know you've spoken now let us hear and apply the truth for your glory, for our good, for the good of others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, be seated. Let me unlock a few critical truths with us this morning, okay, as we jump in here. I want us to look at the blood of Abel first. The blood of Abel cries out for a reckoning for his brother, a reckoning. Now, we don't use that word a lot anymore, but I like that word. It's a powerful word, and it means a retribution for action, an accounting for things done, an appraisal or a judgment. In this case, divine judgment. Let's talk through the scene again. Verse eight, Cain had talked to Abel. Somehow he got him out into his territory. They're in the field. Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and he murdered him. He killed him. Now, we don't know how. We don't know a lot about the circumstances. Did he take one of his tools? Did he do it with his bare hands? God puts the blood on his hands. God actually says that later in the story. But God then comes and questions him, where is your brother Abel. That echoes an inquiry God made of Adam, you'll recall, in Genesis 3, 9. He said, Adam, where are you? God was not lost. God didn't think Adam was lost. God didn't think Abel was lost. God in his omniscience and omnipotence knew exactly where they were, but both acts of disobedience are now tied together, indicating that Cain's murderous act has antecedents in the sin of his father. But unlike his father, who reluctantly admitted guilt, you remember, uh, the woman you gave me, and then she said the serpent, but he said, yes, I did take and eat. Did you notice in the story, Cain makes absolutely no admission of guilt. He actually never admits his guilt. Cain, in fact, adds to his condemnation by lying to the Lord. He attempts to evade responsibility and absolve himself of responsibility. How does he say it? Am I my brother's keeper? That's an interesting play on words. I'll come back to it in a moment. But the text repeatedly uses the word brother to bring this into focus for us. Now, let me make a statement. I'm fairly confident in the statement I'm going to make, though let me be clear that there could be other people populating the earth at this time. What I do know is that Genesis records Cain is first, Abel is second. 
It is possible sometimes in Hebraic genealogy to have gaps where there were other children born, and that may be possible, but I'm going strictly on what the word of the Lord says, and I've written it like this. The first man born on earth, because Adam wasn't born on earth. He didn't come through the womb of woman. He came by God's hand fashioning the clay, Adam, the ground, and breathing into it. The first man born on earth killed the second man born on earth, his own brother, Now, as you process that, and again, to those who are watching, please excuse us. We're going to leave these slides up a little bit longer. Um, That's for people in the room to take notes, and we don't have our third screen in this facility, so we're just going to keep that up a little longer than maybe you think we should. But you also have notes online if you'd like to get to those. I want you to think about this, though. What should have been love between two brothers becomes torqued. Remember that word in Hebrew? Twisted, perverted. That which should have been the closest becomes distorted and deviant. In other words, love turns upside down into hate. And sometimes it's true in our life that those we're most passionate for, we end up actually having the most hatred for. So a passionate love can turn into an actual crime of passion. And we can twist it and it can turn into hate. You know, sometimes we think, oh, the world is so horrible and it's bad. And look at all the violence and immorality around us. And yes, that's true. But do not forget that the first two recorded men born on earth, brothers, one murders the other. Don't forget that. That sin has always been twisting and turning and torquing things. We see how the love twists into hate as Cain responds to God's inquiry about his brother's whereabouts. Callously, untruthfully, he lies to the face of God and says, I don't know where he is. Well, he's right where you left him. And then he asks this very interesting question. Am I my brother's keeper? Why is that an interesting question? Because it's a play on Abel's occupation. If you'll recall in the earlier part of the chapter, the Bible says that Abel was a keeper of the sheep. Exact same language here. And he says, what, am I my brother's shepherd now? I'm a ground tiller. You didn't like my sacrifice. You didn't like what I brought you. You respected him and what he brought. You didn't respect me. You can almost hear the venom being spewed, at least reading between the lines of what happens here. And he says, what, now am I the shepherd? Is Abel my sheep? What are you expecting of me, God? Am I my brother's keeper? What does the world say? Let's particularly talk about Western culture and American culture. Does the world answer the question in the affirmative, the positive, or the negative? If we were to say in this world today, am I my brother's keeper? The world, the culture out there would vehemently say, no. (laughs) You do you, I'll do me, man. You have your truth and I'll have mine. You got your story and I'll have my story. Isn't that what the world tells us? That is the narrative today, but that's not the way the real world works. That's why that's such a false narrative. It's such a fallacy because nobody lives that way. We've talked about that quite a lot in Genesis. Nobody really lives their story apart from yours. And I can't really live my life apart from theirs. What is the biblical response? What is the Christian response? Am I my brother's keeper? Yes. Yes, actually I am. Yes, I am responsible, not just for me, but for others. Cain's sarcastic, uncaring words really symbolize people's unwillingness to to accept responsibility for the welfare of others. 
Now, I'm going to say something you may not like. I've said it all three services. I'll wait and read the emails later today. Here's the deal. I think government needs to get their hands out of the welfare business. And let me tell you why. I believe biblically it is the responsibility of the church of the living Lord Jesus Christ to take good care of folks. That's why, go ahead for the two of you that agree. That's good. So, that's all right. That's why Roe v. Wade, the overturning, praise God for it, but it was just the start, church. We can't rest on the government to take care of these precious young ladies and men and these babies. We, the church, must step up. We must take good care of people. We must love them well. Governments should keep themselves into the military and into law and to enforcement and everything else. Well, they tend to mess up. Okay, so that's all about that. But the reality is we are responsible. I've written it as this. Christians, we have the responsibility and privilege of looking out for others. Jesus taught this when he said the second greatest commandment is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Remember, he said, love the Lord your God with everything, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Look at the Ten Commandments. The first four were God-inclined. They were vertical. The last six were man-inclined. They were horizontal. How we love God can be indicated by how we love others. And how we love others can be indicated by how we love God. The Bible says, in fact, in the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And who has to teach you this? Nobody. Let's think about it. If you're physiologically okay and psychologically okay and your hand goes, I know there are anomalies. We don't make rules based on anomalies. But if you're okay, okay, you put your hand on a hot stove not knowing it's hot. What do you do once your hand touches the hot burner? Oh my, my hand really hurts. I'm leaving some flesh behind on the stove. I should probably remove it now. Yes? No, every one of y'all are like, woo, I saw the Pentecostal coming out of some of y'all. Thank you, Jesus. You say, ow. That's right. Thank you. Somebody's awake. Do you have to teach this self-preservation mechanism? No. Normal people, physiologically, psychologically, you're hungry, you eat. Do we teach it even to babies? No, the baby is wet, he or she wants to be changed. The baby is hungry, he or she wants to eat. What happens? <coughs> right? Don't just talk about that at lunch, talk about the message. I got all kinds of mad skills, okay? Don't come at me. So here's the thing. Babies know how to do it. We know how to do it. Jesus never even explains love your neighbor as yourself. He says, you already know what that means. If there's a need, take care of it. If they're cold, get them warm. If they're hungry, get them fed. If they're thirsty, give them a drink. That's what the Bible says. But what we've done in our culture, what we've done in our world, what we've done even in this wonderful nation in which we live is we just keep giving, giving, giving with no expectation. And when people are able to do for themselves, you know what you got to do? You got to let them do for themselves. Because the Bible says if a man will not provide for his own household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. We've got to give men some fish, but we've got to teach them how to fish. See, the thing is, we see this reality at the very birth of the church. In Acts chapter 2, it says everyone's needs were met by the members of the body of Christ. Everyone came together, put it in the pot, and everybody had plenty. 
So what does that mean for us? What it means for me is this. I am my brother's keeper. Do something kind for somebody this week. Do something unprompted with no expectation of thanks or a returned favor. I mean, guys, listen, in all these years of ministry, I'm telling you, I've been so deeply, incredibly encouraged. I was out with a member the other day. We were having a great lunch, and one of our other members walked in, and before we knew it, they had picked up the tab and blessed us with that meal. Unexpected. They didn't ask for anything. They just blessed us, and I can't tell you how many cards and emails even, even between services, a very kind text came in from one of my dear brothers here talking about the earlier services. Regardless of monetary value, doing something kind and loving your brother well, I know what you say, but it's my life and it's their life and I don't want to get involved and that's them and this is me. Quit thinking that way. It's so individualized and it's so Americanized. I am my brother's keeper and so are you. Now that doesn't mean we forfeit all rights to privacy and such. I'm not saying you can just show up at my house at 2 a.m. without repercussion, but I am saying that we've do, we do need to look out for one another. Verse 10, he said, what have you done? The Lord said, the voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. What is that? What is that? Well, listen, we must always be ready to answer for our actions. I want you to jot that truth down. We must always be ready to answer for our actions, not make excuses. Cain lies. He tries to change the subject. He whines. He plays the victim. Do we have any of that entitlement and victimization culture going on today? Yeah, Lord, am I my brother's keeper? He doesn't tell the truth. He just deflects and defers. But you see, Isaiah 2.12 says, the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everybody who is proud and lofty and against everyone who's lifted up. Why? That he may be abased. God says, if you exalt yourself, I will humble you. And Cain attempted to raise himself. The language is even clear. In verse 8, he attempted to raise himself over his brother. And God said, okay, big boy, I'll bring you down. Isaiah 10, 3, what will you do on the day of reckoning? When disaster comes from afar, to whom will you run for help? Where will you leave your riches? See, your checkbook is not fat enough to keep you from the day of reckoning. Your moral bank is not full enough to keep you from the day of reckoning. A day of reckoning, a day of accounting, a day of answering is coming for us all. Now, are you going to be standing in your self-righteousness as Cain was? Or are you going to be robed in the righteousness of Christ? Are you going to make your gift to God by faith as Abel did or just an external religious work like Cain did? See, the religious leaders in Jesus' day thought they could stand on their own good works. And Jesus said something very interesting to these guys. He said, I want to remind you that it was your forefathers who killed the prophets, but their blood is on your hand because you're not living according to the word of the prophets. Let me, let me give it to you from the Bible. It's in Luke 11, also in Matthew 23. It's in your notes. Jesus said, woe to you lawyers. You load men with burdens hard to bear and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. That sounds a little governmental to me too. You guys do this, but we're gonna set a policy for ourselves. We're gonna do our own thing. Woe to you. You build the tombs of the prophets your fathers killed them. In other words, you try to honor the prophets, but you don't listen to them. In fact, you bear witness that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they killed the prophets, and you build their tombs. 
Therefore, the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles. Some of them they will kill and persecute. That the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation. Now listen to this. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the temple. Yes, I say to you, their blood will be required of this generation. What is that all about, Jesus? He said, look, Abel had a testimony of faith. He was attempting to worship God, but his blood still cries out to me. All of those great prophets that you persecuted, many of whom you killed, you think you're honoring them now, but when you disobey my word and you do your own thing and you try to make your religious works make you right with me, their blood still cries out. Their blood still says there's a day of reckoning coming. The blood cries, verse 11, so now you are cursed from the earth, Cain, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood, look at this, from your hand. You did this, Cain, and you're about to get punished for it. You have to give an answer to the Lord. You know, I've come to expect with four kids and a lot of people in and out of the house that things are gonna get messed up or broken sometimes. Generally, I'm okay with that. What I'm not okay with in the Lewis home is when things are messed up or broken and nobody tells me. There's this little fear that when we tell God, uh, we tell God, no. <laughs> when we tell, you should tell God. When we tell dad, there's punishment coming. And that's a justifiable fear, okay? But what really irritates me is when they don't tell me and then it makes the problem worse later. And I know your kids would never do that. But sometimes that's happened in my house. So we've got this deal now where, look, if it's messed up, if it's broken, just tell me. Let me deal with it. But many years ago, our sweet second daughter, Holly Nicole Lewis, she's a special young lady. Hollywood, Hurricane Holly. She has a lot of wonderful names. Holly is scheduled to be married in the spring. So I'm told. I have not given permission yet, so y'all should pray about that. Actually, her, her beau is overseas serving our country, so we're grateful for that. But Holly was about six or seven, and for some reason thought she would take it upon herself to remove all the fingernail polish from her hands. She got purple fingernail polish remover. Why is fingernail polish remover purple? I don't know, but that's what she got. She took it into the bathroom shared by her and her siblings and there was a big, long, cultured marble sink. It was pure white, shiny and beautiful. Had one sink bowl in the middle, but off to the side, she decided to try to get the fingernail polish off. But Holly proceeded to spill the purple fingernail polish remover. And guess who she told? Nobody. Do you have any idea what happens to purple fingernail polish remover when it sits on a white cultured marble sink for a long period of time without getting wiped up? It soaks into that cultured marble. So that by the time someone comes along like a mama or a papa and finds the disaster, it is set in. I found out later, Holly did not wear fingernail polish for one solid year, because I was not happy. And six and seven-year-olds don't have to have fingernail polish, okay? But here's the, unless my granddaughter wants it. Okay, but here's the deal. <laughs> here's the deal. We tried everything to get that out, but it had soaked into that 
faux marble, cultured marble. It had soaked down so deeply that now this perfect, beautiful, white sink, it was a very long sink, either had to be replaced or we had to do something. Well, I was too cheap to replace it, so eventually I got tired of looking at this purple blob. I painted over it. And I apologize to the people that bought our house. Now you know the truth. That's what's under there. Okay, I think we might have told y'all. We love you, though. They're good former church members. Here's the deal. Why would I tell you all of that? Because all of us make a spill every now and again. You can choose to tell the Father, allow him to clean it up, or you can let it sit and soak. The longer it sits and soaks, the more likely it is to set in. And once it's set in, it's there. And the scarring, the remainder is there. And what God is trying to say to Adam, what God is trying to say to Eve, what God is trying to say to Cain, what God is trying to say to you is, come clean, I already know. Let's just talk about it, let's deal with it, give it out, that's homo logos, same word, confess. That's what the Bible says, confess to me, I already know. Let's expose it so you're not just trying to cover it. You see, that's what he says in 11. He says, the ground itself is speaking to me. The blood of your brother that drips from your hand is crying out to me from the very ground where I made your father. Think about that. James 1 warns us that sin always begins small, but it grows and conceives and ultimately leads to death. And we see it with Cain, don't we? We see the sin multiplying. We see the disappointment when God doesn't accept him and his offering. We see the anger, the jealousy. Finally, we see the murder, and the murder's not the end of the sin. Then he lies. Then he tries to cover it up. The hatred in his heart led to the murder in his hand. And the blood of Abel cries out for a reckoning for his brother. But now you need some good news because we're gonna look at the other part of scripture with this. I would add to that, the blood of Jesus cries out for redemption for his brothers and sisters. If Abel cries for reckoning, Jesus cries for redemption for us all. Ironically, Abel never talks in the Bible. There's not a one recorded word of Abel, much like Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus. No, one recorded word, but his testimony of faith continues to speak. Abel's blood convicts the sinner, and it is the blood of Christ that provides redemption for the sinner. The writer of Hebrews speaks to both. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 12, 24 says, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Meaning the blood of Jesus says something to us that's even better than Abel. Abel says a day of reckoning and punishment is coming. Jesus says a day of provision and redemption is coming. Abel's blood spoke of murder. Jesus' blood speaks of righteousness. And like the serpent, of chapter three, Cain is placed under a curse. The curse indicates the gravity of his crime against God and creation. God had every right to take his life immediately, by the way. Later in the Mosaic law, we'd find a life for a life, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. We would find that God would require life for life. But God was gonna give Cain another chance. Cain cried out in verse 13, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Some of your Bibles say my sin or my iniquity. I actually prefer the New King James rendering. I think it's more accurate, my punishment. I don't think he's truly repentant. I think he just says, I can't take it, Lord. You're gonna cast me out into the world where I wander. I'm gonna be cast away from family and I'm gonna wander. 
and you're going to be separated from me, and, and then people are going to rise up and kill me. I can't bear it. It's kind of like I think without Jesus, there's no way I could bear the punishment God has for me. If I tried to work my way to God, I would fall short. I know I would in my mind, in my mouth, in my hands, truly in my heart, I could not measure up and I would be forever separated from God, cast away as a vagabond from him. I couldn't handle it. Cain repeats God's curse and he says, I'm done and I'm doomed. But I've written this, the blood of Abel cried out for punishment, but the blood of Jesus cries out for provision. You may remember that statement in a recent sermon series, punishment and provision. I showed it to you on a scale. And I said, the same God who punishes also provides. And they're balanced. They're not out of balance. They're perfectly balanced. And, you know, it's interesting how Cain says, whoever finds me will kill me. Well, well, who are you talking about? The only recorded people we have in the Bible are Adam and Eve, and then Cain and Abel, and later they have Seth, and then they go on. But what's up? Remember this. The Bible doesn't tell us everything we want to know, but everything we need to know. How could Cain fear when the earth, we think, was uninhabited? I want you to listen to this commentary, commentary for a second. Kylan Delich have a great Old Testament commentary set, German theologians. Listen to what Delich said. He said, it is clear that the blood avengers whom Cain feared must be those who should exist in the future when his father's family had become enlarged and spread abroad. Maybe, yes. Kyle adds this. Though Adam at the time had not many grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and great-great-grandchildren yet, according to verse 17, we'll see next week, he must at that time doubtless have already had other children who might multiply and earlier or later avenge Abel's death. I agree. Now let's think practically for a minute. What is the window of time a lady may conceive in our day? 20, 30 years, give or take. Life expectancy, we know, could get as high as the one teens, maybe 120, but it's dropped more or less to the 70, 80 range. And we know that that conception window is fairly narrow. Now imagine if you lived 10 times longer. Why did they live so much longer? Again, the way sin affects and infects us, it begins to tweak genetic coding. It changes us down to the very cellular level of our being because Adam and Eve were created perfect. There was no destruction in the cell. There was going to be no death. And so now you only have one generation removed. And so Adam and Eve, according to the Bible, live a very long time. What would her window for procreation have been? A very long window. Do y'all know the Duggars? Man, they had 19 kids in a regular window of time. Adam and Eve could have literally had hundreds of children. Multiply that by the grandchildren. I mean, we've been thinking about this. We've got four kids. We got Lucy, Sophie, or Sophia Scott is on the way. And then if all of our children get married and if all of our children have children, I, I'm going to be a poor grandpa. I'm just going to tell you right now. Because whatever they want, we give them. And I'm not going to apologize to my own children for it. That's just the way it is. The second generation is blessed. Here's the thing though. They could have had a lot of children and grandchildren and I believe what Cain is saying is look, somebody's gonna come along one day and say that's the guy that murdered Uncle Abel. We gotta get him. Family vengeance. Family vengeance. And so he says, I can't take this, Lord. I can't bear it. By the way, the most important question everybody wants to know, where did Cain get his wife? Don't wig out from me, his family. Again, it was different. I don't mean West Virginia different, y'all. I'm saying it was different. 
It was different. Now listen, don't wig out by what I'm about to say. If you believe Genesis, remember the whole series is called Fact or Fiction. If you believe Genesis, you're married to your kin too. Oh, that puts a new spin on it. You are related if you go back far enough. I know it gives you the tingles. It's a little weird, but it's the reality. That's why there's no place for prejudice, hatred, bigotry in the heart of a true Christian. No place at all. We are in the same family. God loves variety. There's a wonderful variety in here. It's a wonderful variety in this world, but we are kin. You can either go back to Adam, his wife, his three sons, his daughters-in-law, or you can go all the way back to Adam and Eve, Cain, Abel, Seth, and those who would follow that we'll read about later. The point is, Cain got his wife from his family. And in that day, again, as sin had not run its course in the way that it has in our day, there's nothing to that. Could have been multiple times removed from him. But after murdering his brother, Cain repudiated responsibility and claimed that God's punishment was just too severe. He said, look, I'll spare your life and I'll even keep you from the avengers of blood. I'll put a mark on you. Now, what is it? I have no idea. Bible doesn't tell me, just like it doesn't explain some of the marks in Revelation. I know what some of y'all think. It's a credit card or it's a, it's a microchip or it's a COVID vaccine or whatever you think. Okay, that's on you. But the Bible does not tell me what this mark is. Maybe a tattoo of sorts. I will tell you that the mark served at least two things. It served to remind Cain that he was a sinner separated from God and it served to remind him that his same God was also merciful and spared his life. Did you know the symbol of the clothing that Adam and Eve wore was a symbol of at least two things? It said that God was willing to make the sacrifice and that the shame of your iniquity would be covered because the Father was faithful. It's like when we look to the heavens and see the rainbow. It says at least two things. I know it's been taken over by others, but it doesn't have to be. The rainbow is a beautiful picture that says God takes sin seriously and he really did curse this world one time with water, but God promised I'll not do it again that way. I'm gonna watch over you, I'm gonna protect you. And so that beautiful symbol shows us multiple things. The mark of Cain served multiple purposes. And did you know what I thought when I read this? Cain is praying. When you talk to God, you pray. He's talking to the Lord. He said, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Lord, you've shoved me out, you've pushed yourself from me, I'm a fugitive, I'm a vagabond. Did you know what this caused me to think? Even the prayer of a hardened sinner can be heard and acted upon by a loving father. I doubt there are many Cain's among us, maybe Cain in your heart. I think all of us, if we've lived long enough, have been guilty of hating a brother, which Jesus equates to murder. But I want you to remember that he was not so far from God that he would forever be separated from God. He would temporarily be separated from God, but not eternally separated from God. Look at Romans 8. Now, I don't know. I'm not saying if he's saved or lost. I'm simply saying God saved him temporarily here. Look at Romans 8. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all? How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And who shall bring a charge against God's elect? If you're part of the family of God, this is for you today. 
It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? If it is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is now at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Think about this church. So tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. As it is written, for your sakes we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep unto the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, angels nor principalities, things present nor things to come, height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing can separate you from God's love. No one can separate you from God's love. There is nothing you've done so bad to keep you out of heaven, and there's nothing you'll do so good that'll give you a pass in. You've got to trust in the finished work of the Lord. You see, Abel's blood made a cry before God, but Jesus' blood also makes a cry before God. To Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant and the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. What have we learned? The blood of Abel cries out for a reckoning for his brother, but the blood of Jesus cries out for redemption for his brothers and sisters. Let me close with a story. It, I read it in a book called Chicken Soup for the Mother's Soul. Don't judge me. Uh, I think you had it laying around the house and I picked it up and I like the. Have y'all ever read the chicken soup books? They're pretty good. So I read Chicken Soup for the Mother's Soul. I'm man enough to do it. <laughs> and I found a phenomenal story by Jeannie Soul. True story. Jeannie wrote, there's a family story my father told me about his mother, my grandmother. In 1949, my father just returned home from the war. And on every American highway, you could see the soldiers in uniform hitchhiking home to their families. That was the custom in America at the time. Sadly, the thrill of the reunion with his family was soon overshadowed, for my, my grandmother became very ill and had to be hospitalized. It was her kidneys. The doctors told my father she needed a blood transfusion immediately or she would not make it through the night. The problem was that my grandmother's blood type was AB negative. That's a very rare blood type even today. But even harder to get back then because there were no blood banks or air flights to ship blood. So all of the family members were typed, but not a single family member was a match. So... The doctors gave my family little to no hope. My grandmother was dying. Her son, my father, left the hospital in tears to gather up all the family members to give everybody a chance to say bye to grandma. As my father was driving down the highway, he passed a soldier in uniform hitchhiking home to his family. Deep in grief, my father had no inclination at that moment to do a good deed, yet it was almost as if something outside of himself pulled him over to a stop. And he waited for the stranger to climb in his car. Now, I'm not asking you to do this for your good deed this week, okay? Don't hear me saying that, but you understand the times. My father was too upset to even ask the soldier his name, but the soldier noticed my father's tears right away and inquired about them. Through his tears, my father told the total stranger that his mother was lying in the hospital dying because the doctors had been unable to locate her type AB negative blood. If they didn't locate that blood type before nightfall, she was surely gonna die. You see where it's going. It became very quiet in the car. And the unidentified soldier extended his hand out to my dad with his palm up. And resting in the palm of his hand were the dog tags from around his neck that said, blood type, AB negative. The soldier insisted that dad turn the car around and get him to the hospital. And Jeannie writes, my grandmother lived 47 more years 
until 1996, but to this day, no one in our family knows the soldier's name. My father's often wondered, was he a soldier or was he an angel in uniform? And that was the name of the entry, angel in uniform. As Jeff and Melissa join me on the stage, let me just say, it was not any blood that could have saved Jeannie Soule's grandmother. It wasn't just anybody's blood. It was the blood of a particular person that added 47 years to her life. And it is not just any blood that will save you today. It is not just any sacrifice that will make you right with God. You cannot be saved by the blood of bulls and goats because ultimately animal blood will never take away human sin. What you needed and what I needed was somebody who was perfect and righteous, unspotted, undefiled. That sounds like God. You needed God's blood. And then you needed somebody who can identify with you and me in every way. A great high priest who could also sympathize with our weaknesses, as the writer of Hebrews said. That sounds like human blood. And of all that have ever walked this great planet, there is only one who has 100% God blood and 100% human blood. And his name is Jesus. He's the Christ, the son of the living God. He's the only one that can save. And so what God did through Jesus was he sent him to this earth through the virgin's womb so he wouldn't be tainted by the sin from the fatherly line. And he lived a perfect life. He died a willing, sacrificial death. He was buried in a borrowed tomb, but by the power of God raised the third day where we just read in Romans, he intercedes at the right hand of the Father and he's calling to you and he's calling to me. And the blood of Abel cried out for punishment, but the blood of Jesus cries out for redemption. And he says, why don't you come? Why don't you? trust me. The work is complete. You can be forgiven. Quit being so silly to try to cover up your sin. It will sit and soak and set in and stain. So why don't you let me wash it away? Why don't you make me take it as far as east is from the west and buried in the sea of forgetfulness? Jesus says, why don't you trust me? It is finished, paid in full. The blood of Christ still cries out. Stand with me this morning. I think you're crazy if you're not a Christian. I'm just going to tell you straight. I don't want to be mean, but if you can't take God at his word, you know this world is messed up and you know you are not good enough, smart enough, you don't give enough and you don't come to church enough to make yourself right before God. So why don't you raise the white flag and say, Lord, I can't do it, but Jesus has already done it. So I'll trust him today. I'll receive him today. I'll have him as my Lord and follow my Lord, my shepherd today. I will follow him all the days of my life. And as David would proclaim, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Why don't you come today? Pastors and counselors will be ready right here to receive you. We would love to talk to you and tell you how you can be born again. You know you're a sinner and you know you need a savior. So let's get honest with God and come. You might need to come today and lay something before the Lord. You might need to come and give him some gratitude. You said, but God knows I'm thankful. The father never minds when the children come and tell him. Thank you, dad. Thank you. You can come today. You can lay it before the Lord today. As I begin to pray, the altar opens up, you come. Thank you so much for watching us today. God is doing absolutely amazing things in and through our Grace Baptist Church family. If you'd like to share anything the Lord is doing in your life, feel free to reach out to us through our website or our app. And if you're ever in the Knoxville area, come by and worship with us and our family of faith here at Grace Baptist Church.